Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Nile Jefferson. My guest expert today is Dr. Piera Taylor. Dr. Piera Taylor completed her ENT training here in Australia and then went on to perform a fellowship at Westmead Children's Hospital where she is now continuing as one of the consultant paediatric ENT surgeons. She's got a particular interest in drooling and runs the drooling clinic here and it's my pleasure to speak with her today. Hi, Dr. Taylor. Hi, Niall. So just to begin with, in general terms, what, what is drooling and how common is it? Well, drooling is the spillage of saliva out of the mouth and over the lips. It's common in children under two and almost normal in children up to the age of four. So we don't sort of worry about it then. But by then, they've got good oromotor control and, and we consider it abnormal after then. But of course, it's um, commoner in children that have um, cerebral palsy or neurodegenerative disorders. In cerebral palsy, it's up to sort of 60% of children that have some sort of drooling, but it doesn't necessarily need to be treated. So when a child is referred to the clinic, for example, what are the key elements in the history that uh, help you in understanding the condition and the severity? So you want to know how much is the child drooling. So there's different scales that you can use, but it's important just to, from the parent's point of view, how many times a day they're changing a bib or a T-shirt. Then you want to know how is it affecting the child socially. Some children aren't aware of it and their parents are aware of it. And all drooling, even in children, is quite embarrassing for parents. Um, the other thing is as children get older, the, you want to find out how the drooling's affecting them at school. They bend over, it goes on to their pages, but the important thing is it's going on to electronic devices that they're all use, using and ruining them. So you want to know how it's affecting them socially and their quality of life. Then you want to ask about their feeding. Are they having any aspiration or posterior drooling as opposed to anterior drooling, which is more of a cosmetic problem? Um, and how are they fed? Are they on a normal diet or thickened fluids or are they peg-fed? I think from the history you also want to know are they getting any, any excoriation from their drooling? Is it affecting their chin? You want to know about their dental hygiene. Some children have problems with oral care and won't let their parents touch their mouths. Some of the other things you want to know is particularly about nasal obstruction. So some children don't have any developmental delay, but they've got marked nasal obstruction from adenoid hypertrophy, rhinitis, or anatomical abnormalities in their nose, and they're very straightforward to, to fix. So you want to take a good history about that, um, and a history about the child's developmental status and what, what's wrong with them, you know, the underlying background and any medications they're on. So you mentioned excoriation. Are there other things on your physical examination that you'll be looking for? Yeah, so on physical examination, you've got to look at the child generally and assess their state of awareness because that starts telling you what um, treatments you can use. So children that are very unaware and quite developmentally delayed can't, of course, participate in oral feedback or behavioural modification. Then you want to look at the posture of the child. So some children are um, sitting in wheelchairs or leaning forward all the time, and you want to look at their posture because gravity makes all drooling worse. We'd all drool if our head was forward. Um, then you want to look at the general um, facial appearance of the child. Do they have an undershot jaw? Do they have low tone, lip incompetence? Um, and what's their maxilla like? Then you want to look at their nose and assess them for nasal obstruction. So do a nasal endoscopy. You want to look at any skin breakdown on their chin and chest. Um, and then you want to look at their dental hygiene as well and their occlusion. You've got your history and physical examination. Are there any investigations at this point that are routine? I think um, there's no... There's no routine investigations. I think it's individualised to each child. So if a child hasn't been diagnosed with uh, aspiration in, in the first instance, I think it's important to 
if you if you're concerned about that, get them to see a speech therapist, and also to get them a modified barium swallow. If you think silently aspirating, you can do a nuclear medicine study where they put a nuclear isotope in the buccal sulcus, and approximately 15, 20 minutes later, they can tell if the isotope's gone into the chest or into the stomach, and that's very important long term for managing the child's chest as well, and that directs the treatment of the child in the long run. Sometimes a lateral airway x-ray to look for adenoids if you can't do a nasal endoscopy. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So we'll get on to the specific management options, but how do you know when it's time to intervene? I really don't do much to children under school age. There's some children that are less than four that are severely drooling, and we it's a multidisciplinary clinic, so we have paediatricians, speech therapists, dentist, um, orthodontist involvement, and it's important... Um, that the paediatrician's involved because they may be able to offer some medical treatments. You can't use behavioural modification at that age until children are about eight. So not until the child's school age, but if they're severely drooling, I do like to do things before they start school because it does affect them socially. Uh, if it's, it's simply a matter of uh, nasal obstruction or large adenoids, I think treat that, adenoidectomy, and a treat, a treat rhinitis. I think also we need to get uh, speech therapy involved to exclude um, aspiration. In some children that are severely drooling, they may be suitable for anticholinergic uh, medications, and I get the paediatricians in the clinic involved in that. But up until the age four, often not much is done. Are there conservative treatment options? Yeah, so we divide treatment into medical and surgical, the, the, uh, well, and even uh, sort of behavioural. So there's the oromotor, stuff, the oromotor treatment, where uh, dentists and the speech therapists use plates in the child's mouth to get them to swallow and encourage them for lip closure. On the evidence, that's not very successful, but I think it's got to be tried because some of the other surgical options are irreversible. Then there's behavioural modification, and that's reminding the child, putting uh, tennis bands on them or giving them a tissue, reminding them to wipe their mouth, close their lip and swallow. That's quite intensive and requires a lot of work on behalf of the uh, the parents. Um, and it's all often not through and often the children regress when they're not reminded. But some of these children, that's all they need. Often you can't do that to the age of eight anyway, is all they need is a awareness of their problem. Some of them are fine after that. They have no developmental, other developmental problems. Then other conservative managements, we're getting onto medical treatment. So the medical treatment consists of um, anticholinergics and Botox. And we try in, in all children, um, medical treatment if they're suitable. So uh, glycopyrrolate and um, scopolamine. And the scopolamine, uh, sorry, scopolamine and benzhexol, so the patches. And the patches now at the moment are proving to be quite successful because they're able to be titrated and divided. Um, it's an off-label use, and so we have to get special um, consideration to use it. And I get the paediatricians to do that because the compliance is quite low because it's up to sort of 30 to 40% side effects, blurred vision, constipation, urinary retention. Um, it can cause excitability and some can cause um, sedation. And so often parents don't like these in the long term. And the next choice where I get involved is Botox. Uh, and uh, so Botox, uh, I shouldn't say Botox, so botulinum toxin A is what we use. And we inject that into the submandibular and parotid glands, individualised to the, the child. Generally, what kind of doses of Botox do you deliver? Right, so with the, with the botulinum toxin A, 
we deliver it under ultrasound guidance, and I think that's very important because there have been a few cases of dysphagia and aspiration post-injection, uh, and just to reduce that risk, we use ultrasound. And the doses we use, it depends on the weight of the child. So a child, this is per gland, so a child under um, 15 kilograms, 15 units per gland, 15 to 20 kilograms, about 20 units per gland, and 25 kilograms and older, about 25 units per gland, which is about the common weight of the child we're doing, so about 25 units per gland, so 100 mouse units all up. Is this a durable response, um, or does it change over time? So with Botox... Um, it doesn't last long. Some people say it lasts up to six months, but three to six months is the average. And that's where a lot of the evidence is lacking um, on how much to give, how often to give it, and how long is it going to last. So a lot more research and um, trials needs to be done on, on that part of it. If you get to the point where medical therapy, conservative therapy have either failed or they've reached the limit of what they can achieve, what then are the surgical options? So there is surgical options. And none of them are ideal because they're irreversible. The best, the best surgical option is rerouting of the submandibular glands. And that's shown to be successful in the long term, up to 70 to 80%. In the short term, it's very successful for the first two years. But then there is, I, th I think, there may be some recanalization of the ducts or the minor salivary glands are taking over. So you may need to complement it with some of the medical therapies. And, and that's quite successful. Then there's um, tying off the parotid glands, removing the submandibular salivary glands, tying off the submandibular salivary glands. And I didn't mention with rerouting of the submandibular glands, you do take out the sublingual glands as well because there's a high rate of ranular and uh, lateral cervical cysts associated with that if you don't. But it's very directed, very individually to the child. With the ligation of the parotid glands, are there any... And, and the submandibular lens, is there any advice that you give the parents postoperatively? So, what so, to expect? yeah, so postoperatively, you get swelling of the glands, um, and so the capsule's under tension, so it's quite painful. It's a sterile swelling, so you don't get the fevers and pain and, and redness that you would get in a bacterial infection. So we give the children good analgesia, and we put them on an antibiotic also that's going to penetrate the glands, such as clindamycin. Are there specific post-operative instructions about uh, diet modification or anything else like that? So with the with the tying off of the glands, I don't suggest anything in particular. It's a very minor procedure. With the rerouting of the submandibular glands, the floor of the mouth is quite uh, swollen and it's quite painful. So good analgesia, we put them on a soft diet initially. A lot of these children can't, uh, can't uh, do mouthwashes, but if they can, we put them on some saltwater mouthwashes. Are there any uh, children or, or clinical cases where, in particular, rerouting the submandibular ducts is is not indicated or not not recommended? So, any children that have posterior drooling, drooling or aspiration, and a lot of these children do have these problems. They're either peg fed or they're on thickened fluids. You would just worsen this problem and give them frank aspiration. And if you feel a child has micro aspirations, they're the ones you should send for the nuclear med studies because you may turn them into frank aspirators if you reroute the submandibular glands. Are there future directions for the management of drooling? I think from a therapy point of view, there doesn't seem to be too many on the horizon, but I think we need more evidence about directing our treatment with regards to the, the medical management, comparing it to Botox, comparing it to rerouting. We need to compare those. I think with the Botox, we also need to um, know the doses more specifically, how often to give it, uh, and I think that's, that's where the future lies with management of you know, drooling and aspiration. 
One thing I like to finish with is the final word. So the final word is an opportunity for you to either highlight something that we've discussed about that is of great importance, or if there's something in the discussion of drooling that we may not have covered, but you think it's a uh, it's a, an important and valid part of the discussion. So I'll hand it over to you for the final word. What, what I think is important is that this drooling shouldn't be dismissed. I think people don't realise... Um, people assess the quanti- quality of drooling, but they don't realise what effect this has on the quality of life on the child and the family and how they get ostracised, they're socially um, left out and it's been shown that a baby that drools is less likely to be picked up and have uh, you know, affection and cuddles. So I think it shouldn't be dismissed and I think we can't always put it down to zero and have no drooling, but we can certainly always improve it and I think that... Um, it should be looked into and children should be referred appropriately so they can be managed and families can be helped. Well, thanks very much. It's been an interesting discussion on drooling. You can find this and other podcasts at iTunes. Search ENT Expert Opinion. Or, of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter and you can contact us at entexpertopinion at gmail.com. Goodbye.